Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 42. Let's take a look at it together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Twenty years ago, when we began here at Calvary Chapel, we took a look at Acts chapter 2 and we said, we want to model this church after the principles that we discover within this chapter. We believe that in Acts chapter 2, this is the chapter where the church was birthed. That the Holy Spirit coming upon these disciples, these 120 gathered there in that room, instituted and inaugurated for us the beginning of the church. And we believe that there were certain principles that are to be discovered in the early church that need to continue into the church today. God's design for the church then is God's design for the church today. And the first principle that we discovered was that if a church is going to be healthy and fruitful, it must be a spirit-led church. And we discussed that and what that looks like and what that means. Secondly, it must be a church that engages the culture, that it integrates into the surrounding culture and permeates and uh, interacts with the culture for the purpose of the third point, and that is evangelism. The church must be an evangelizing church. Either we evangelize or we're going to fossilize as a church. And after that evangelization, we see in our text that the number of disciples in Christ went from 120 to 3,120. In the first evangelistic invitation that Peter gives, 3,000 people respond and, and receive Christ as their Savior. And now the church begins. In verse 42, where we began this morning, we find that they then continued in these four things listed here in Acts 2.42. The Apostles' Doctrine, which is teaching, which we looked at our, in our last time together. Secondly is fellowship, which we'll look at today, the breaking of bread and prayer. Today, though, we are going to begin to try to understand the mystery of this word fellowship. The reason I call it a mystery is because so many people have so many different understandings of what this word actually means and what it looks like to participate within. And I want to clarify it for us this morning. I want you to understand what biblical fellowship actually is and looks like 
Because today we are using words uh, that mean something completely different today for the word fellowship. Uh, for example, uh, instead of saying fellowship today, we, we use this term, do life together. Do life together. I still don't know what that means. I have heard that now for over 15 years. I don't know what that means. Or community. That's another word that we use now in exchange for the word fellowship. And I do believe that these new terms were adopted by the church to help to try to explain the mystery of this word fellowship. And as we look at this, we are going to discover some very interesting principles. Because let us understand from verse 42 that the early church devoted themselves to these things. Notice that in your text. They devoted themselves to these things. I mean, made a high priority. I like the way the New King James phrases it. They continue steadfastly in these things. Not only were these things a high priority to the early church, but they were determined to do them even if there was resistance to them fulfilling these things. If there was some type of deterrent that was keeping them from hearing the apostles' teaching or fellowship or breaking of bread or prayer, they were going to weather through those things so that they could continue in these things. This was important to the early church, and it should be important to us today. As we continue to look at this, we discover that when the early church got together, these four components truly characterize their interaction with one another. It appears that as they gathered together there in various places, from the outer courts of different uh, the temple to the home of an individual, they spent some time learning the apostles' teaching, and that is the reiteration of the teaching that Jesus gave the apostles, that the apostles are now passing on to the people, and so forth. That teaching that we have is contained in the Word of God. The Bible that is on your laps this morning. But then they continued in fellowship. And I have been looking forward to working through this mystery with you this morning. Because like I said, I truly believe that if someone were to pin me down, if I was uh, on uh, one of the questions and answers radio shows that I've done in the past, and I was asked, what of these four are really needed today? You might be surprised that I would say fellowship. True, authentic, biblical fellowship is desperately needed in the church today. Some may find that that is a little surprising. I thought for sure you would say that we need the teaching of the Word of God. Trust me, I am a strong proponent of the teaching of the Word of God. The expository teaching of the Word of God is a necessary component of any healthy church. But I also believe that if we neglect any one of these four, we will have a wheel with a shortened spoke. Fellowship today is needed desperately within our church. 
And the fellowship that I am talking about, the biblical understanding of fellowship, is vastly superior to the understanding of simply doing life together. It is so far beyond just mere community. It is an essential element of a healthy church and a healthy individual Christian life. I say that because I believe that all four of these can be used as a litmus test in the life of an individual believer. If a believer finds themselves in a point of uh, they feel dry in their walk, they feel a little distant from God, I often start with this uh, litmus test to find out and to help them discover where they may be deficient to help them regain that passion for their Savior once again. Are you in the Word, the Apostles' Doctrine? Are you in fellowship? Are you in the breaking of bread? What does that mean? A communion state with God. Are you in prayer? And usually I don't get past these four to find that there's serious deficiency in one of those, if not more of one, that need to be attended to to rediscover and to re, uh, fall in love with Christ all over again, return to their first love all over again. Fellowship. If I simply were to bring the definition of this word to your attention, it would read as such. Fellowship, an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Close association and then, of course, I love when people define the word fellowship by the word fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Fellowship. Thank you. I'm incredibly enlightened from that conversation. If I left you simply with that definition, you would still be found wanting. Though you have the technical working of the word, you don't see how the word is worked out through the life of the individual believer. And one of the aspects I love about the new translations of our Bibles, the ESV, the NASB, the New King James, is that the translators took such great uh, stakes in trying to appropriate the best English word to represent the Greek word that was originally used by the writer. To help us truly understand not only the academic definition of the word, but how the word played out and was lived out in the life of the believer. See, I believe that any theology that we learn as Christians is meant to be lived out in our lives that, as Paul had said, we need to become living epistles. People should be able to read our life and see a testimony of Christ within it. So as we look at the word together, this word fellowship, if we simply defined it by its, you know, core meaning, we would still find ourselves wanting. Now, if we took a look at the word in our English Bibles, we would find, for example, that the ESV Bible uses the word fellowship nine times in the New Testament. And that would be a great place to start. But do you believe that the search ends at that moment? 
We have the English word fellowship nine times used for us in the New Testament of the ESV version of the Bible to give us nine different perspectives of the definition of the word to allow us to see how the definition, how the meaning of the word is multifaceted. Looking at a jewel, you don't look at it from just one perspective. You look at it from many different directions to see how perfect that jewel actually is. To understand the perfection of this word, we must look at it from multiple directions. But let us understand, though, that though the English word fellowship is found nine times in the ESV Bible, that English word only represents a what? A Greek word that was used by the original writer. Okay, am I, am I losing some now? Eric, I switched to decaf. It's the beginning of the month. Uh, maybe I should have waited till next week before I went there. But let us understand that the English translators wanted to give us the best representation of the word by finding the best English word to represent the Greek word. So what I am saying is this. Though we have the English word fellowship used nine times to represent the Greek word koinonia, it's actually used 16 times in the New Testament. That means that there are seven other locations throughout the New Testament that the same Greek word koinonia is used, but now is represented by other English words. Does that make sense? Those other words are partnership, participation, to take part in, sharing, and contribution. Koinonia, represented by these various different English words. Partnership, participation, take part in, sharing, and contribution. So this word that we were looking at face value, that we were looking at from one dimension, we now actually find that there are seven dimensions to this one word. Fellowship is one of the seven descriptions of this Greek word in English. But there are other English words that are used to describe that exact same Greek word. Let me give you some examples. In Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, and making my prayer with uh, joy because of your partnership, koinonia, in the gospel from the very first day until now. 2 Corinthians 9, 13 through 15. But their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution, there is the word, koinonia, for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In Hebrews thirteen sixteen, Do not neglect to do good and to share, koinonia, what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
And lastly, just again to give you a few well-rounded verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all part Take of this one bread. This is just a few of the examples. This word fellowship meant so much more to them than just simply doing life together. It, it meant so much more than just um, being in community with one another. For example, you can have a portion of the church called Fellowship Hall. And if I were to go to that portion of the church, which would be outside our sanctuary here, and stand in that room named Fellowship Hall with all of you, does that mean that I am fellowshipping with you because I am standing in Fellowship Hall? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that I am fellowshipping with you simply standing there in Fellowship Hall any more than it means that I am a car if I stand in a garage. There was something dynamic about the fellowship of the early church. And it's described for us in the following verses. That fellowship led them to recognize the needs of one another. To participate in the fulfilling of those needs towards one another. That fellowship led them to uh, uh, devalue the materialistic things of this world and begin to truly value their brother and sister in Christ. This fellowship was so unique. And it is greatly lacking in the church today. One wrote, he said, when it comes to fellowship... It refers to an intimate but not casual community spirit. Christians fellowshipping includes a relationship that begins with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The beginning of this fellowship, the manner in which we can come together and enjoy this unique experience with one another called fellowship is simply provided because we find ourselves in the person of Christ. We're Christians. And because we are Christians, we now have access to this dynamic component of the church called fellowship. That's where it begins. This fellowship can be so dynamic that you could even bring in a non-believer in the midst of it. And when fellowship is happening properly... And Christians are interacting with each other in this incredible understanding of fellowship. The unbeliever can be moved to the point of reconsidering and to really think about where they stand with God. It can be a dynamic witness to the unsaved world. It's huge. But it begins with God. It then plays out in the lives of of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. This multifaceted, dynamic experience, fellowship, partnership, 
participation, taking part within, sharing, contributing, can be one of the most restoring aspects of your church experience when it is done properly. One of my favorite commentators, Dr. William McDonald, wrote another evidence of the new life that was, desire, that was the desire of the new believers to be with the people of God and to share the things in common with them. There was a sense of being separate, separated to God from the world and a community of interest with other Christians. It's a dynamic experience. And maybe you've seen it in uh, small ways over the course of your Christian life. Maybe you found yourself, for example, away from home on vacation. And you're down visiting the kingdom. That's the magic kingdom. And as you are walking through... Disney World, supposedly the happiest place on earth, but I've seen more kids have meltdowns at Disney World than anywhere else. You can run into someone, say you're waiting in that line for six and a half hours for a 15 second ride. Again, let's question our wisdom in participating in these things. And all of a sudden discover that you're next to a believer in Jesus Christ because you look at their t-shirt and it says, Jesus is king. And you have to say something. You just can't let it go. Are you a believer? Oh yeah, I'm a believer. Are you a believer? Oh, I'm a believer. Are you a brother? Yeah, I'm a brother. Are you a brother? I'm a brother. And it feels like you knew the person forever in the course of the conversation. And then after you have that experience, if it's like me, you see him everywhere. And then it gets a little creepy because you think they're following you or, you know, that they may think you're following them, but it just happens that you're always with them. It's part of this fellowship. And you're just always moving throughout the park. I can't tell you how many times I've been in places not knowing anyone, then meeting a fellow believer in Jesus Christ and feeling like I've known them forever. It's an incredible experience. Can't explain it. But yet it is all part of this fellowship that we participate in in Christ. We need this fellowship here at this church. And again, it's more than just simply doing life. It's more than just community. We need fellowship with one another. Pastor Greg Laurie said this. What does this word fellowship really mean as he was trying to really flesh it out? He says, we throw it around a lot, you know. We'll be meeting in the fellowship hall. Is that fellowship? Let's have some fellowship. What is fellowship? Everybody asks me for fellowship, but what is it? Well, I tell you what it is in the Bible. It comes from the Greek word, of course, koinonia, he says. That is the word that is used here. They continued in koinonia. It's hard to translate this word, he says. It could be translated fellowship or partnership or communion. It's also a word that could be translated out of, out of the word to be generous. It is a word that is encompassing all of those ideas and more. It is far more than simply socializing. Anyone can socialize. People can get together and rally around their passions, be it a sporting event or cars or whatever else that it may be and whatever their interests might lie within. 
But it is not that kind of gathering of social interaction that is in view here. It's different in every fashion. This is where people get together and the center of their interaction is God. And God meets them there. That's so true. Today, I want to encourage all of you of the necessity of fellowship in your life. It is an amazing aspect of the Christian faith. To help us flesh this out even further, let us talk a little bit more about what it is not and some of the things that are hindering this fellowship within our society and why I believe people are starving for it today. But I will let you know up front, in a moment of disclosure, that I often find in my own personal Christian life, when I'm in a period where I don't feel as uh, on fire or passionate about my Savior as I had in the past, it's often due to the fact that I'm needing fellowship with my brothers in Christ. Iron sharpening iron getting together with my mentors to sit down and let them hold me accountable and, and uh, challenge me personally in my faith. In fact, I came to such a place about 10 years ago. Oh, I was studying the Word of God. My prayer life was dynamic, but I was lacking in this fellowship. And the person who saw it was my wife. It wasn't that I wasn't in church, It wasn't that I didn't have appointments with people that were in the church. I'm talking about that fellowship, the biblical, authentic fellowship that is needed in the life of the believer. So I intentionally reached out to some men who are my mentors, and I said, listen, I need a little bit of help. Can you meet with me? And they said, if you buy us coffee, we'll meet with you anywhere. I got great mentors. And within three weeks, the pa- I, just, I just went from zero to 60. It was unbelievable just in being encouraged by these men in the faith. But why are people starving for this? Why do we seem to be lacking this so desperately in our society today? Do you know that the secular world is now fascinated with the concept of relationships. Psychologists and psychiatrists are doing some of the most um, lofty, if not comprehensive, work on identifying healthy relationships, revisiting all of their previous conclusions and rewriting many of them. We live in a relationship-driven society. And do you know what we're lacking the most in our society? Relationships. Individuals have stated that out of 3,000 people polled, they stated that in the top three answers of what is important to them, relationship was found. And in the top three answers of all of these participants in this poll, all 3,000, stated relationship is where they were lacking the most. One individual stated that it is not uncommon for every 100 friends that a person has on Facebook, 
to have one true friend out of that hundred. Think about that for a moment. We are starved for authentic relationships in our society today. We are starved for them. And there's many different reasons for that. Let me just give you a few. The first reason is the breakdown of the family. That has led to the lack of and the starvation of individuals concerning healthy relationships. Let me give you an example. One of the TV shows I enjoy watching is a show uh, called um, Blue Bloods. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Tom Selleck plays a character named Frank Reagan, who is the, it was the police commissioner of New York City. And uh, I voted for him for president um, uh, because, uh, again, just a show I enjoy and I enjoy his character. But I found out that I caught an article that came out and why Blue Bloods is so successful as a TV show. See, there's an aspect of this show that is very attractive to many, many people. The show usually ends, the hour episode usually ends with them around the dinner table as a family, multi-generational, from the grandkids all the way up to great-grandfather himself. And before they eat, they say grace together. As a Catholic Irish family there in New York being portrayed, of course, it's uh, uh, portrayed on on the show, people are very attracted to that. They find, they find comfort in that. That seems very uh, uh, reassuring to them, that type of family dynamic. Do you know that that's the way it used to be in this country, period? People used to get together on the weekends, on Sundays, and have multi-generational dinners with the family together. I remember them growing up in the 70s. Grandma was there, grandpa was there, the aunts were there. You know, you had the grandkids there. I mean, I was at the kids' table until I was 20. But you had this multi-generational dinner, and you know what we did? We talked. We interacted with one another. Problems were discussed. Answers were given. The older learning from the younger, the young, I mean, the older uh, getting vitality from the younger, and the, uh, the younger learning from the older. It was incredible. It was those dinners that I learned how to play poker. (laughs) My family was a gambling family. But I could talk to my grandfather. I could talk to my aunts and uncles. And this was a common thing. We drove into the city and we had family dinner and we sat down and we talked with one another and we learned how to have relationships. And if you dared turn down the television during that, you would be, well... We had some family members that are no longer with us. <laughs> you didn't dare turn on the family uh, TV. That was family time. Anybody else remember those kind of days? It was awesome. Okay, invaluable. We don't have those anymore, do we? Very rarely do those things take place. So the natural area of development for relationship within the family has been eliminated. So now, relationships need to be learned amongst society, within society, but there's a problem with society today, isn't it? 
We have a very self-centered, self-absorbed society today, don't we? I don't have to make an argument for this. It's all about me today. That is the banner that so many carry. Let me ask you, if you put two people in a room who are both self-centered, how dynamic do you think that relationship's going to be? How deep do you think that relationship's going to be? That is going to be one of the most unhealthy relationships that you've ever seen. And we're finding that today in many cases. The self-esteemed banner that we have promoted for so many years has now taken its full effect and it has destroyed relationships. Relationships. The first serious work is now being done on the effect of social media and the development of healthy relationships. I am so thankful for this. There is a problem. You can think that you have healthy relationships if you have 300 people as friends on Facebook, but I challenge you that you probably don't have authentic relationships at all. I was happy when I got to 10 friends on Facebook. I cherished every one of them. I think I have nine today. I'm a little bitter about that. No, I'm kidding. But social media has certainly hindered the progression of healthy relationships developing. And the first serious work is now being done uh, by Focus on the Family and other Christian organizations. Uh, And I'm so glad because we need to see this now. Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook are not the place that you're going to cultivate healthy relationships. And lastly, our society from World War II on has been permeated by certain philosophical ideas, and one of those philosophical ideas is existentialism. And part of existentialism is a big conversation, a big topic, but part of this was to look at the world with contempt, with criticism, with a critical attitude. The people around you, per se. That was part of its development, that you need to be cautious and put yourself in this position. It was a development, it was a refinement of the ideas that were originally laid down, and what it has caused is this, that we are very centric to what happens in our own personal family. Anything outside that sphere, we're not nearly as in tune to or care about as we once used to. I remember as a child having to go to the hospital due to a uh, obstruction in in my um in my stomach and when i was at the hospital the room wasn't big enough my grandma and grandpa were there my aunts and uncles were there my cousins came in to see me and so forth my dad came from a family of 11 brothers and sisters in the city of chicago there wasn't enough people and they were not going to leave until they knew i was okay They weren't going to do it. And yet today, that closeness has been severed somewhat by this thinking that has morphed now into all different kinds of uh, displays and understandings and so forth. But we have what I'm trying to uh, explain to you, many things working against us in the development of healthy relationships. And when we come to this dynamic of fellowship, It is all about relationship. 
And it starts with our relationship with God and then our relationship with one another. And part of the problem when these things are trying to be manufactured within a church, here's what people, the churches run into. They see the necessity for community. They see the necessity of uh, people doing life together. So they try to come up with a program. They try to come up with a, a manner in which to facilitate it, but they make some mistakes in the process. And let me give you three. Number one, and this is huge. There's a demographic segregation to this fellowship. Today, we have segregated things to the finest point, to the most limited um, interaction that we could possibly ever get. For example, people are expecting churches to have ministries that cater to almost their every specific need. I'm looking for a ministry um, for a, uh, a mother and a father who has one child with black hair and brown eyes. Where is that fellowship? Or I'm looking for a fellowship that has, uh, that, you know, um, is specifically for professionals. Or I'm looking for a fellowship that's specifically for blue collar workers. And you have this demographic segregation installed in this, and they think they are better serving their congregation when I will argue to the point of my very last breath that the health of the fellowship of the biblical authentic fellowship was multi-generational interaction. Mentoring the younger and the older together. Allowing the younger Christians to hear the wisdom from the older believers in Jesus Christ. And when we sever that and we make everything, and we segregate the church in such little compartments and little pockets, are we really doing our best? Maybe what we need to do is allow the older generation to speak into our lives a little bit. And older generation, maybe we need the the younger generation to speak into our lives a little bit and to let us know we're not dead yet. And we still have life. And God still wants to use us. And so forth. It's so important. If you notice in the books written to Timothy, Paul outlines this mentoring, especially in Titus also, that it was multi-generational the younger with the older, working together. We had a family leave our church to retire, to go down to Florida, to a beautiful um, over 55 community. They were looking forward to it. They built a beautiful home and so on and so forth. And when they got down there after the first couple of years, they flew us down there. We had a wonderful time with them and I was pulled into the, uh, his den and we sat down there and he said, you know what? I miss everybody. He said, I miss the interaction with the younger people. I said, I, I, I like being down here, but I, you know what? Every time I make a friend, the next thing I know, I turn around and they're gone. I need that fellowship. And I said, you know, you keep flying us down here. We'll fellowship with all, you know, we love Florida. <laughs> I did say that to him because I could, you know. And he laughed and so on and so forth. But uh, we, we need to be multi-generational, guys. We have to. 
my walk when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ at 16. I went to a church that there was about 30 people at at that time. It was a very small church at that time. And as I was being fed the word of God, I had very few friends my age within that church. But some of the older ladies saw me coming in and going out by myself. And one day they invited me to come out to lunch with them. And they even said that they would treat. And so I went with them. And I could not believe how blessed I was from that conversation in Denny's that day. That lady, uh, with others, continued to follow up with me often as I would walk into the center aisle of the church. Um, she'd grab my arm and say, how are you doing this week? Can I pray for you? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you, are you living for Him? And so forth. And I could say anything to her, and I know that she was going to take it in prayer And I tell you that they were instrumental in my development as a Christian. I didn't know anything about needing a a, a group of kids my age. I had no idea what that mentor looked like. But someone wanted to spend time with me. I had nobody. They reached out to me, and I'll tell you what a blessing it was. We need that here at this church. We need that interaction between the generations to be healthy, and to allow God to move within our fellowship. The second point that I see many churches making the mistake within is this. They try to sell it to their congregation as this. You will be so blessed by it. You will be so self-satisfied by it. You're not going to want to miss it ever again. Wrong expectation to be setting with them going into it. Because now they're going to be looking for the expectation of what I am going to get out of it. We have too much of that today already. How is it going to meet my needs? How is it going to meet me here? The fellowship of the early church was characterized by them going to discover how they could meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ who had need. They came looking. What can we do to bless you? How can we help you? That was the mentality of this fellowship. They were looking to give away, give away, give away, not get, get, get. They were looking to bless others. We had a gentleman at the church I grew up in. He was unbelievable. And I caught him one day doing something that he was kind of embarrassed of at first because he wanted his reward in heaven and felt that I had stolen it. But what he would do, he was a successful businessman in our church. And what he would do is that he would just simply listen to the congregation and as he heard that someone had financial need, do you know what he would do? While they were not looking, he would slip an envelope into their Bible with cash. That was his ministry. And people were blown away by it. And I saw that one time. And I said, as long as you keep slipping those envelopes in my Bible, I won't tell nobody. (laughs) But I'll tell you, I'll never forget what fellowship looks like. That gentleman never came to that church service looking to get anything. And I'm sure he had need. I'm sure he did. 
But his heart was for others. It was not how I can be blessed, but what can I do to bless others? And that was his ministry. As he would pray with people, as he would interact with people, that was his ministry. And it led to fellowship. And lastly, one of the mistakes that I see that churches are making when it comes to fellowship, it's one-dimensional. It's very one-dimensional. But as we learn, the word fellowship has seven dimensions to it. And if we are going to be authentic in our biblical fellowship with one another, it means participation. It means contribution. It means uh, sharing in and so forth, partaking. It means more than that. And I believe that if we simply come with the right heart attitude, because of our fellowship with Christ and because the Spirit of God resides in us, that He will play this out naturally amongst us. If we just allow Him to do so. If we take the moment to prepare our hearts before a Sunday service, not only the hearing of the Word of God, but say, Lord, allow me to bless my brothers and sisters today. And I will tell you, that you will be greatly blessed in return by God. And nobody else may know of what your needs are, but God does. And God will take care of those needs for you. What we need to do going forward and in closing to allow this fellowship to flourish in our church is this. Number one, we need to be intentional about it. We are isolated from one another enough. There are so many reasons that we are apart from one another. So many cares of life, so many commitments, so many responsibilities. We need to be intentional about getting together with one another. And if you need something more than what we can offer here at church, do our size of the church, then call one another. Call me. I'll let you take me for dinner or coffee. Say, Pastor, I need fellowship. Would you fellowship with me? Sure. I need, I need to get with another guy. I need to just talk about the Lord for a little bit. Call me. Because how do you know that the person that you're calling doesn't need it just as much as you do? Be intentional about it. Reach out for it. They continued steadfastly in it. They devoted themselves to it, even in the wake of resistance. They made it a point that we are going to do this thing. Be intentional. If you don't take control of your time, time is certainly going to take control of you. Please understand that. And the next thing you know, you're going to be looking back and you're going to say to yourself, where has the time gone? I can't believe those 10 years went by that fast. Be intentional, number one. Number two, hopefully based upon what we talked about this morning, you will have an understanding of the full purpose of fellowship. So now you're being intentional, and you have the right mindset as you're entering into it. And therefore, you're looking to give rather than to get. You're looking to bless rather than to be blessed. You're looking to serve rather than to be served. 
I think those are all very biblical principles. And let it be multi-generational. The younger with the older and so forth. All of my mentors are at least 15 years older than I am. I need their wisdom. And this might surprise you. Even my father, who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, is one of my mentors. He will be a believer soon. I'm, I'm going to push him, pray him into the kingdom of heaven regardless. I know I can't do that. I wish I could. But, but just getting together with them. Let it be multi-generational. We need that so bad in our society. We need that so bad in our society. And number four, understand that I believe that this will naturally occur if we're intentional, we have the right mindset, We're biblically multi-generational, allowing the older and the younger to minister to one another. I believe that because of our fellowship with Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the indwellment of the Holy Spirit within us, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Because the Spirit wants this to be a dynamic of our church life. And regardless of what happens in the world around us, we can know that we have the security of the fellowship of our church. And it can be a real blessing to all of us. We need your participation in it. They made it a huge priority. They made it intentional. And so do we 